Thank you so much for checking out our podcast. We hope today's message encourages, inspires, and empowers you to follow after Jesus like never before. Before we get into today's teaching, I want to invite you to join us live at one of our services at any of our three campuses in West Virginia, or join us as we stream live online. For more information or to save your seat at one of our services, visit our website, iheartchurch.online. Now let's check out today's message. How many of you brought your Bibles this morning, your physical Bibles? Look at that. Okay. All right. Um, I'm on this campaign to bring your Bibles to church. Who would have thunk it, huh? Bring your Bible to church, right? Um, it dawned on me, though, someone said after I talked about this last week, about something about bringing the physical Bible. I use version as well. Um, and I, I love, I'm so thankful for that app and for having the Bible on our phone so accessibly. But there's something about touching those actual pages of Scripture, flipping through the pages of Scripture. And um, I had someone in a life group a couple of weeks ago said God even spoke to them when they did their quiet time in the mornings to do it in a physical Bible so that their kids, when their kids got up, they didn't think they were on their phone, but they, they knew unmistakably dad is reading his Bible. He's seeking God in the morning. I thought that was pretty beautiful. And then last week after we talked about bringing our Bibles, um, Laura Baker, she said, you know, um, the sound of those pages flipping through scriptures, it dawned on me that uh, it could be just one generation and that's completely foreign to all of the to all of humanity. Doesn't even remember or know what the sound of flipping through the Bible or to touch a Bible and to read it. Something about seeing it in your hands. I think there are certain things that we need to preserve for our kids for the next generation. And so um, today is a great day to bring your Bible or to pull it up on your phone because um, we're gonna be reading a lot of scripture. Um, and um, one of the things that, you know, before we get started, I'm a little nervous because I had a part two of the message on Ruth. Um, it was pretty much an already done message that I had preached in a conference so on loyal servanthood. Um, there's so many things you could talk about. We could, we could stay in Ruth really for several, uh, several weeks, but there's so many um, topics that you could really discuss. And I already had a message. I'd already you know, redrafted it for our church and had had a lot of messages this past, you know, the next 10 days. So I had done it in advance. And on Thursday, I got up and I felt like the Lord just wanted me to listen to the book of Ruth on, on version um, over and over. So I started to just listen to the book of Ruth over and over and over. And about the fourth time, um, I, right before the fourth time, I felt like the Lord said, listen to it one more time. And so I was like, Okie dokie. So I listened, and I, I feel like I almost have the book memorized now. Again, it's only four chapters. It takes about 15 minutes. So I listened to it for the fourth time, and when I tell you God hit me with something that I literally shouted in my living room, things I've never seen before, and he asked me to completely change the message. And so what we're going to talk about is completely different. It's a different style that I'm used to. It's a style I'm not comfortable um, with teaching because it's very much easier in my organized brain to come in here and to read a passage, to give you some points, and then send you on your way. And that is not how the Lord is letting me do this today. I want to show you in Scripture today the story within the story of Ruth. Um, and I think one of the reasons I'm more nervous, um, besides the fact that it's just out of my normal communication the ways that I, you know, used to communicating scripture. You ever been at a landmark, maybe the Grand Canyon, maybe the mountains, maybe the ocean, and you think, wow, right? And then you pull out your phone and what do you do? You take a picture and then you look at that picture and what do you say? 
I did not do it justice, right? And I'm telling you, I, my prayer is I, I'm intimidated because what the Lord revealed to me in this, um, I just pray that the Holy Spirit will allow me to do it justice um, because it is a direct revelation, I think, from the Holy Spirit for us today. And I'm, at, I'm completely dependent on him to reveal it to you for yourself. So if you're curious and leaned in and hungry, that's good. If you got your Bible, you can go ahead and open up to the book of Ruth. You can flip through those pages and open up to Ruth. And then we're going to pray and we're going to jump in. Give you a second to get there. All right, let's pray. Father, I just thank you for your word. I thank you for the revelation of Jesus. Father, I am amazed that you love us so much. That you reveal yourself in unexpected ways. That you speak and give the bread of heaven to us. I'm amazed at the love of Jesus and the providential plan to offer Christ as a substitute for our sins. From the beginning of creation, as soon as the fall happened, Father, you were already pointing to Jesus. And so, Lord, I ask you to anoint me this morning to just get out of the way. God, I ask you, Father, that I would be sensitive to say what the Spirit of God is saying and nothing else. Abba, I ask that you in the way, only the way that you can, reveal yourself personally to each person listening. God, there's going to be different applications. There's going to be different things that are spoken to each heart. Father, I'm not going to tell them what to think or tell them what to receive. Father, I ask you that you would do that. You would do that work. And if I do nothing else, Father, let me point to Jesus. Because that's what the scriptures are doing. We love you and we honor you. In Jesus' name, I said, amen. All right, if you're ready, say, I'm ready. All right, so we're going to recap a little bit, um, but the title of today is The Story Within the Story. We're going to talk about loyal love um, and the story within the story. One of the most beautiful things about scripture that... Um, when I, when I studied this book that I've studied since I was a child, read it over and over and over, is that every time I come to it, I see something I didn't see before. It's alive. It is textured. It is layered. There's way more hidden. It's a treasure um, that is designed to be discovered. It's not something that we're meant to come to the first time and figure out and conquer. It's meant to be a journey that over our lifetime, we continue to come back and find treasures that point us to Jesus. The beautiful thing about scripture is that even in the Old Testament, even 4,000, 5,000, 6,000 years ago, the whole story from Genesis to Revelation is a pointing to Jesus. This whole book, even before Jesus physically shows up in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago, Jesus was always the point of scripture, always. He wasn't plan B, he was God's plan A. In Revelation, at the very last book of the Bible, we, know, we find out that it says, before the foundation of the world, the lamb was slain. This means God knew we would fall, 
God gave us ahead of, ahead of time the option to choose for ourselves, and he knew what we would choose. The cross was not plan B. The cross was always plan A. And from Genesis 3, at the very first mention of sin and the fall and the curse, God begins to point and to prophesy to what was coming, his plan that would come, and that would be that out of Eve's womb, she would have a child, and that child's heel would be crushed, but he would crush the head of the serpent as his heel was, his heel was wounded. It was a pointing to Jesus. From the very first chapters of Scripture, it all, all points to Jesus. And I want you to write this down. All Scripture points to Jesus because Jesus is the point. All Scripture points to Jesus because Jesus is the point. So when I say there's a story within the story of Ruth, it changes the way you have quiet time. When you, yes, take in the fact that these are literal events that happened, these are literal historical facts that happen that are recorded. There's a lot of application we could take out of Ruth. We could, I've heard sermons talking about godly dating and how to, found a how to find a spouse. There might even be a lot of applications like I was going to teach about servanthood in the kingdom of God. There's so many applications. We even see that in this story we find out about the lineage of Jesus. So there's a lot of reasons, a lot of things packed into this little book but man, scripture begins to change when you start going to it and looking for Jesus because he's there. In John 5, Jesus tells the Pharisees, you search the scriptures because you think they give you eternal life, but the scriptures point to me. In Luke 24, it we hear about this instance when Jesus takes the disciples through the writings of Moses and all of the prophets explaining from all the scriptures the things what? concerning himself. He's in the Old Testament. He's all throughout the New Testament. All of the scriptures point to Jesus because he is the point. So I want to show you the gospel in the book of Ruth. Are you ready for that? Because this is the greatest love story of all time. The story within the story is really a love story about you and Jesus. This is the point of Ruth. It's pointing to Jesus. Let me show you some of these parallels. We'll recap some that we learned as we teased about last week. Naomi, and if you remember, she's this Jewish woman who had a husband who was Jewish, and they moved, they had two boys, and they moved to Moab, which was really an enemy of the Jewish people, but they moved because of a famine. And while they're there, her husband dies, her two sons marry two Moabite women. Um, and then 10 years later, those boys also die. And so now, so now Naomi is living in Moab with her two daughters-in-law. And she decides that she's going to go back to her homeland, to the people of God. She's going back to Israel. And as she says goodbye, she tells the girls to go back and find families. This is a patriarchal society. These women as widows have no choice. They have very little education. It wasn't Naomi's choice to move to Moab. At this particular time, and really for generations, a woman's testimony is not even valid in court. She has no very little opinion or say-so in her life. And so now she's here in this foreign land, away from her people, away from godly customs, and she's lost everyone she loves. But she hears that there's grain. She hears that there's bread. And the Lord blessed her people back in Israel with grain. And so she's decided to go back. And so we discussed last week how Naomi represents the father, represents choosing to follow God or Yahweh. And she has these two daughters, and, and she says this, 
uh, she says, daughters, I want you to go back. And so Orpah says, I don't want to go back, but okay, if you insist. And she kisses her and goes back to her people and to her gods. But Ruth clung to her. And so last week we talked about how this is a picture of clinging to the Father even when it means suffering. And Ruth 1.16, she says, Ruth says to her mother-in-law, don't ask me to leave you and turn back. Wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you live, I will live. Your people will be my people, and your God will be my God. And so here we see that Naomi, just to recap, Naomi represents the father or following God. Ruth represents the true bride of Christ, the true bride of Christ. The only person in all of Scripture to be called virtuous is Ruth. Plot twist. Proverbs 31 is not just ladies. It's not just a manual to make you feel like you are a complete failure. <laughs> Plot twist, it's actually a picture of the bride of Christ. It's the bride of Christ it's pointing to. And this is why it's right before in the Hebrew canon, the original Hebrew canon, right before the book of Ruth. And so Boaz, I told you last week, and we're going to meet him today, represents Jesus Christ, the family redeemer. But remember last week I told you that Naomi says this curious little statement. She says, no longer call me Naomi. Instead, call me Mara, for the Lord has made my life very bitter for me. And so what we saw last week, that these two girls, one was kissing, one was clinging to, to, kissing and saying goodbye, and one was clinging and going with her. This is a picture. Naomi means pleasant, and Mara means bitter. This is a picture of choosing to cling and to stay with Christ, to remain in Christ, even through suffering or bitter seasons. So this is what we discussed last week. We also talked about how Orpah is really a figure or a pointing to the apostate church or a counterfeit church. These are people who claim to follow God but don't really follow him. There's, a, there's an end point to their following. They turn their hand and they look back. They refuse to remain in the vine. Notice in verse 15 that Naomi says to Ruth, look, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her what? To her gods. This is a picture of Orpah going back to her old life. And we know that Orpah was never heard from again. We never find out what happens to her. And just as we talked about last, last week with the branch and the vine, that unless you remain in him, you cannot bear fruit. And Orpah does not bear fruit that remains. And yet Ruth is grafted into the lineage of the Messiah because she chose to cling to God. And so last week we really highlighted to you that this book is, a, is setting before us a choice of which bride we're going to be. Which type of love we're going to have for the Lord. Is it a loyal love or is it a convenient love? Are we going to kiss or are we going to cling to him? But this week I want to highlight to you again that this is a book of, this, this book is a love story about Christ and his church. A love story about Christ and his true bride. Now, how many people does it take to have a love story? Two, right? Otherwise, if only one party is in love, it's not really a love story. It's a story about, unre uh, you know, unreturned love, right? So this is a love story, and I want to show you Ruth's love 
And I also want to show you Boaz's love. And we're going to do this sort of in chronological order as the book goes through. I want to progress. So first, we are going to study Ruth and how she demonstrated loyal love. And what I find is remarkable, this is in particular what I want to point out to you this morning, is the parallels between things that happened in the time of Jesus and the things that are happening now. This was 400, this is 400 years before Jesus was born. And yet we see Jesus all in the story. We see Ruth following the teachings of Christ that have not been written down yet. She's doing things that have not been taught yet. I'm going to show you what I'm talking about. First, I see her demonstrating loyal love and the way she counted the cost of following Naomi and still decided to follow her, even though there were no benefits or perks attached to following Naomi. In Luke 9:57, we see Jesus talking about this. He says, as they were walking along, someone said to Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. But Jesus said, foxes have dens to live in and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to even lay his head. In other words, I can't give you anything on this earth. Isn't this quite different than the way we approach the gospel in America? We promise a very prosperity gospel, a very Americanized version of the gospel as an addendum to our lives to make our lives better. Listen, you're rich. You have the American dream. The only thing you lack is just God in your life. Here, just say this prayer and add him to your life. But that is not the way we see Jesus presenting the gospel at all. That is not the way we see the apostles presenting the gospel at all. We see it being very costly. In verse 59, he goes on to say, he said to another person, come and follow me. And the man agreed, but he said, Lord, first, let me return home and bury my father. But Jesus told him, let the spiritually dead bury their own dead. Your duty is to go preach about the kingdom of God. Another said, yes, Lord, I will follow you. But first, let me say goodbye to my family. But Jesus told him, anyone who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is not fit for the kingdom of God. These red letter words, they're ouch, right? Jesus doesn't mince words here. So we see her. Radically counting the cost, knowing that if she decides to go with Naomi, she is now completely, completely dependent on someone else to help her. She is leaving her family. She is a Moabite, the Israelites' enemies. Her best shot is to get remarried. If she goes to Israel, a good chance they will completely reject her. And now she's got baggage of an old lady with her. She's counting the cost. And yet she still said, do not tell me to leave you. I'm not leaving you. Your people will be my people. Your God, my God. She was determined to go despite the cost. The second way I see her really living out the teachings of Jesus is that she left her father and mother an entire life to radically follow God. Matthew 10, Jesus says this. If you love your father or mother more than you love me, you're not worthy of being mine. But can I ask you, what love covenant doesn't require exclusivity? This seems harsh until we understand that even in marriage, we have, we have the understanding or we should have the understanding that to cleave to my spouse means to leave my family behind. And that no longer is my original family my priority. Now, my husband and my children, this is my priority. It's a leave and cleave. And so Jesus is saying a true love covenant with him requires that forsaking all else, I cling to you. 
I come into covenant with you. No one, not even my mother or my father or my, listen to this, he goes on, or if you love your son or daughter more than me, you're not worthy of being mine. Even your own kids. Now that really rubs us wrong, doesn't it? These red letter words. In Luke chapter 12, Jesus goes on to say, from now on, talking about now since Jesus has showed up, families will be split apart, three in favor of me and two against, or two in favor of me and three against. Father will be divided against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother. It's pretty clear. Jesus is saying the sword of God's word, the sword of the gospel is even going to sometimes cost us relationally with family. But if we love anyone more than Christ, we're not worthy of him. Count the cost. And so we see her doing this. This is radical faith. She has to essentially, when she says, your people will be my people, she's saying the Jewish people. She's choosing Judaism here. Your people will be my people. Your God, Yahweh, will be my God. She's leaving the Moabite God, and she's going and clinging to God himself following. She's converting to Judaism. So the next thing that really strikes me about how she's living out the teachings of Jesus is that to do this, she also has to leave her life and her self-sufficiency behind. She leaves her ability to redeem her own life has now been buried in the ground. To make this choice means that she's putting herself at the mercy of God to come through for her and declaring, I cannot, I choose not to do this for myself. Do y'all hear me? In Luke 9, Jesus says this to the crowd, if any of you wants to be my follower, you must. Does it say you might want to if you'd really like to? If you want to be my follower, Jesus says, you must give up your own way. Take up your cross one time. Is that what it says? Daily and follow me. If you try to hang on to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake, you will find it. You will save it. This is a picture of repentance when Ruth makes this decision to leave Moab, to leave her God, and to turn to God. It's repentance. She's turning and following him. She's following God very much physically, very much tangibly. She is repenting and turning toward God, and now she's completely dependent on God to save her. She is unable to save herself. Do you want to know the largest section in any uh, bookstore, self-help, the self-help section, one of the largest sections in any hardware store. Can you guess what it is? DIY, what's that stand for? Do it yourself. We are a very self-sufficient, pull myself up by the bootstraps kind of society. It's American pride. I can do it myself. I can take care of myself. Independence. Yet, in the kingdom of God, that is exactly what works against us. Because there are some things you can't help yourself, right? Matter of fact, you try to help yourself, and what do you end up doing? Making it worse, screwing it up. Thank you. And can I tell you to follow Christ, what, what this is really a picture of is, God, I cannot save myself. This sin debt is too large, and I cannot do it. I, I turn away from self-sufficiency, from trying to be good or be bad, from trying on my own to change my heart. I turn from my self-help and I turn to the mercy of God. I fall in the mercies of God. 
It's complete and total dependence on grace through faith and not works. Do y'all hear me this morning? And so she's turning to God. In the process of turning to God, she meets a man named Boaz. Can I tell you, when we begin to look for God, we will inevitably find Jesus. I'm going to say that again. Anytime we start crying out for God, God, show me who you are. If that's prayed from a sincere prayer, God, show me who you are, you know we're going to land right in front of Jesus. Because in John 10, 30, Jesus said, the Father and I are one. We are one. So now if you've opened up to Ruth chapter 2, look at just the verse just before we roll into Ruth chapter 2. It's in Ruth, the last verse in chapter 1 says this, so Naomi returned from Moab, and now she's accompanied by her daughter-in-law Ruth, the young Moabite woman. And they arrived in Bethlehem in late spring at the beginning of the barley harvest. And then we're going to go on and move to Ruth 2, verse 1. And now there was a wealthy and influential man in Bethlehem named Boaz, who was a relative of Naomi's husband, Elimelech. Elimelech means the Lord is my king. And one day, Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go out to the harvest fields to pick up the stalks of grain left behind to anyone who was kind enough to let me do it. And Naomi replied, all right, my daughter, go ahead. So Ruth went out to gather grain behind the harvesters, and as it happened, she found herself working in a field that belonged to Boaz. As it happened, the relative of her father-in-law, Elimelech. Now, we get some, some, some pretty curious little details and just this little passage, some things that we notice is that there was a Jewish custom all the way back in Deuteronomy. The law instructed the Jews to be different. It instructed the Jews to care for the widow, the orphan, and the fatherless. Now, so in one of the ways that they would do that, the widow, sorry, the widow, the foreigner, and the orphan, that they were supposed to, to take care and be mindful of them. So when they would glean their fields, they're picking up harvest, he would, the Lord told the Israelites to not glean the edges of the field. To intentionally leave some there so that the poorest in the community could come in. The foreigner, the widow, and the orphan could come in and glean among these fields. So it's curious to me that Ruth, uh, that she knows this. She knows this is a custom. So I think that she's picked up on some of the Torah by being married into this family. She knows this is a custom of the Jewish people. It's also curious to me that she did not choose the lifestyle that most widows in this day would have chosen, which would be prostitution. Because, again, you're at the mercy. You have no way to make money to sustain care for yourself. And so she chooses to go out into this field and to glean and to basically have to to depend on others in order to to provide for her mother-in-law. And so we really see this virtue coming out of this woman. But she also knew some aspects of the Torah. I want you to notice this. Why was Ruth serving Naomi in this way? What? What made her, what do you think? What made her cry and cling and now begin to go out into a hot field as a young woman, choose to be a foreigner? She was a foreigner. She was an orphan because her father-in-law was dead. And now she was a widow, the lowest of the low. She pinged all three categories. And not only that, but she is a, a, a part of the people that are enemies of the people of God. She's likely despised in this culture. Do you see how much it cost her? And yet she's here picking up grain in the heat, serving. Can I tell you that Ruth was not serving Naomi for love. Ruth was serving Naomi from love. She knew she already had Naomi's love. She was not serving to be loved by her. 
She already knew she had her love. And can I tell you guys that when we come and we choose to follow God, to serve the Lord is not because we need him to approve of us. He already does because of Christ. We don't serve in nursery or in the parking lot or behind a computer or at the altar or make a meal because we're trying to, do, to pay our penance to God. The penance has already been paid. Our standing has already been changed. We are now in right standing with God because of Christ. We're not serving to get his love. We already have it. And can I tell you, this should also be how we serve one another. When we serve people so that they will applaud for us or so that they will approve of us or so that they'll be friends with us, then really we're sowing selfishness. We're sowing something that we're going to reap selfishness. It's almost manipulative to serve for love. But she's not doing that. She's serving from love because she's been so loved by God she wants to give this to someone else. And that should be our motivation for serving the Lord. In Galatians 5, it says this, but don't use your freedom to satisfy your sinful nature. Instead, use your freedom to serve one another in love. Luke 22, these are red letter words. Jesus says, among you, it will be different. He's talking about the leaders of this world. They jockey, they lord it over the people that are underneath him. But among you, it will be different. Is it different among us? Is the way we lead different? Is the way we love different? Is the way we serve different? Because it should be. Those who are greatest among you, believers, followers, should take the lowest rank, and the leader should be a servant. Among Christians, we shouldn't be jockeying for the best position or even positioning ourselves at all. If we're going to jockey for a position according to Christ, it should be the lowest one. We should be fighting over who gets to scrub toilets. Essentially, that's what he's saying. Among you, the greatest, if you want to be great, I'm telling you, you've got to be a servant. James 1, again, she's living out these teachings that are not written yet. Pure and genuine religion in the sight of God the Father means caring for orphans and widows in their distress and refusing to let the world corrupt you. And we see Ruth living this out. John 15, 13, Jesus says this, there is no greater love than to lay down one's life for his friends. Now, I've always read that verse. There's no greater love than to lay down your life for your friends. As a bullet comes after Carla, I'm stepping in front of that bullet, right? Like, I'm going to lay down my life. I've thought about this in a very practical way, right? A literal sense. But last week, this hit me in a totally different way. I had a very crammed, slammed week. There was a lot going on. And yet I felt the Lord asking me, there were several people in my life, I felt the Lord asking me to serve radically. I was bringing a meal to a family who had gotten home from the hospital, and I felt like the Lord said, Melody, don't just make them any, make them any meal. Make them your best meal. I want them to know how much I love them. And immediately the thought in my head, I don't have time to spend six hours cooking a gumbo and potato salad. Because that's my best meal, y'all. And if you've had it, you say, oh, yeah. I don't have time to do this. And in my heart and in my head, greater love has no one than he lays down his life for his friends. If we won't live for our friends, what makes us think we would die for them? If we won't be inconvenienced for our friends, what makes me think I would lay down my life and take a bullet for them? Lay down our lives for our friends, practically. Serving one another in love even when it's not convenient, going to that friend's child's birthday party, even though you've got four other birthday parties on Saturday, 
because they don't have family in this community. It's their baby's first birthday, and guess who their only family is? The body of Christ. The body of Christ doesn't show up in who will. I'm talking about sacrificial, loving one another. Guys, in Acts, this is how they loved each other. It said they shared, they had all things in common. They considered nothing that they had as their own. Is this how we love each other? Even how we mingle in life groups. What I see in American church still is so far off from the original church because most of us treat our life groups like a church service. We go to it. We don't see it as ours. We don't have ownership. And so you have the same people opening their home all the time. They're leading the group. They're making all the food. They're cleaning up the chaos after the kids destroy the house. Do you all hear me? But that's not the picture of GPS in the scriptures. They shared all things in common. It said no one had needs because none of them considered anything that they had as their own. They shared it all. Our life, my life is your life. So one says, you can use my house. The other says, hey, I'll make the food tonight. It was sharing all things in common. They laid down their lives for one another. Y'all still with me? Jesus says, Father, make them one. Make them one. They will know you are Christians by your what? Love for who? The lost? That's what you would think he would say. One another. That's curious. They'll know you're Christians by your love for each other. We live, they'll know we're Christians by our outreach strategies. By our food trucks. We're going to serve them food and pray for them and then they're going to get saved. And of course that happens. But that's not the strategy Jesus gave us, is it? doesn't mean we don't do it. We're definitely commanded to, to feed the poor. But he actually says, they're going to know you're Christians by the way you love each other. Now, how is that the greatest evangelism strategy in the world? Have you ever been around a family, like a really super close-knit, awesome family, and thought, man, it must be so cool to be a part of that family. I wish I, was, I, wish, I, wish I grew up in a home like that. When they see us radically love each other, the world says, because at our core, we all want love. We all want family. And they look at us and they say, I want to be a part of that family. Look how they love each other. But guys, if all they see is the same selfishness, the same independence, if all they see is bickering and fighting, they say, I grew up in a house like that. I don't want nothing to do with that. They'll know we're Christians by our love for one another. And here, Ruth is laying down her life. For Naomi, and as she's doing it, she just so happens to land in Boaz's field. Boaz's field. And this makes me want to bring out this little point. To follow Christ means that we are where he is and we care about what he cares about. She ends up in his field. She ends up in the field of Boaz. To really love someone means that we care about what they care about. What does God care about? If we say we have loyal love for God, what does God care about? Now, I do not care about basketball. I don't care. I'm sorry if that offends you or hurts you. I really am sorry, but I just don't care about it. And yet, she says, bless her, Lord. And yet, my family really loves basketball. And so guess what I learned to love? Basketball. Now, I still don't know most of the rules. I still get laughed at. 
at a game, when we cheer, I just repeat whatever I heard the person say. I don't know what to cheer, so I just say whatever the person behind me says. But why do I show interest? Because my family cares about it and I care about them. So if we say we love God, we need to care about what God cares about. What does God care about? Well, usually you can tell what somebody loves by their time, talent, treasure, where they spend their money and where they spend their time, right? What they talk about all the time. So where did God spend his time, talent, and treasure? For God so loved the world that he gave. He, he took the purse of heaven, opened it up, and dumped it out. Why? For the world, for the lost. God loves humanity. God cares about humanity. Remember last week we read in John 21 where Jesus asked Peter repeatedly. You could put that up on the screen. They could just look at it. He asked him repeatedly, Peter, do you love me? Then what does he say? Feed my lambs then. Next verse, he asked him again. Peter, do you love me? You know, I love you, then take care of my sheep. And then a third time, what does he say? Do you love me? And he was hurt that he asked the question. He said, feed my sheep. What is Jesus trying to get across? If you love me, take care of the sheep. How can we say we love God and ignore what his heart beats for? How can we say we follow Christ when we're not where he's at? Where is he at? He's in the field. He's in the harvest field. He's taking care of people. He's laying down his life. He's bankrupting heaven to seek and to save that which is lost. How could we just go live our lives and do what we want and say we love God? We're not sitting in his lap here in his heart. We're not really abiding in him if we don't start to have a burden for people. Because to love him means we love who he loves. That harvest field, guys, that's a picture of the kingdom of God. In Luke chapter 10... Jesus says this, the harvest is great, but what's few? So pray to the Lord who is in charge of the harvest and ask him to send more workers into his field. What does he care about? He cares about the field. And here we see Jesus saying, stop praying for the harvest. The harvest is great. He never tells us to pray for a great harvest. He said the great harvest is already there. He says, I can't give you the harvest because there's not enough people to tend them and take care of them. The harvest is great. It's the laborers who are few. It's the workers who are few. So would you pray? Would you pray that God would send laborers into his field? This is his heart. This is what he cares about. In John 4, he goes on to say, my nourishment comes from doing the will of God who sent me and from finishing his work. You know the saying, four months between planting and harvest, but I say wake up and look around. Wake up and look around at your school. Wake up and look around at your workplace. The fields are already ripe for harvest. The harvesters are paid good wages. I'll pay you well, he says. And the fruit that they harvest is people brought to eternal life. What joy awaits the planter and the harvester. Like, can I tell you? what joy it is to work in his field. It is not a burden. Every day I am in awe that God allows me to witness the things that I witness. To witness literal, literal orphans being adopted into permanent families that love them and now will raise them according to the, to the word of God. Do you understand how many of those are in our church? By my estimations, we probably have 150 foster children in our church so beautiful. And to watch that happen, to watch a family 
who risks it all and may not even know if they get to take to keep this kid, watch them upset the order of their home and to take a child in and to be able to witness that and encourage them and champion them, it's a joy. To be able to get down at this altar and pray with people who are giving their lives to Jesus and celebrate, to, to serve children at our school and in, in this church, it's a joy. What a joy. And I want you to notice that all Ruth does, though, it wasn't fancy. Working in the field's not fancy. She was just picking up things that were dropped. If you want to know where to start with serving, just pick up what you see is dropped by the other harvesters. We love to be Monday morning quarterbacks. We love to point out all the deficits we see in the body of Christ and in his church. We are good at being critical and cynical. What we are not good at is realizing that sometimes we see the problem because we are the solution to the problem. Very often, the reason you see it is because God wants you to meet the need. All she did was get behind and pick up what the other harvesters, could you just get behind some other people who are doing God's work and notice what's being dropped. Notice that there's a hole in that area and just start filling that need. It's that simple. It's nothing fancy serving in his kingdom. But now I want to show you when she begins to do this, and this is where it's about to get fun, y'all. I want to show you as we really enter Boaz in this story, Boaz's response to Ruth's loyal love. I'm about to read a lot of scripture. Y'all hang in there. Ruth 2, verse 5. So Boaz notices her gleaning in the fields, and he says, who is that young woman over there, and who does she belong to? And the foreman replied, she is the young woman from Moab who came back with Naomi. She asked me this morning if she could gather grain behind the harvesters and has been hard at work ever since, except for a few minutes of rest in the shelter. So she's hard working. Boaz went over and said to Ruth, listen, my daughter, stay right here with us when you gather grain. Don't go to any other fields. Stay right behind the young women working in my field. See which part of the field they're harvesting and follow them. There's a lot of implications there, right? Get behind some people who are already doing the work of God. Follow them around. Pick up what they drop. I've warned the young men not to treat you roughly. And when they're thirsty, and when you're thirsty, help yourself to the water they have drawn from the well. I want to show you how he starts to reciprocate this love. First, he gives her protection and provision. As soon as she starts working in his field, he gives her protection and provision. In verse 11, I've heard how you left your father and mother and your own land to live here among complete strangers. May the Lord God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge, may he reward you fully for what you've done. So they're dropping, we're going to see in a minute, they start dropping intentional loaves. He says, I'm going to protect you so no one will harass you. You can have water. He's protecting her. And can I tell you that when you take care of God's house, he takes care of yours. If you want to get on my good side, be good to my children. But if you want to get on my bad side, come on, mama bears, papa bears. Hurt my kids. And so we see the natural response of a father who you're taking care of, they're helping take care of their children is to just, hey, what can I do to bless you? This blessed me so much. I want to bless you. I want to protect you. You take care of his house. He'll take care of yours. But, you know, there is an instinct for all of us to go into self-preservation mode, isn't there? Especially in a time of a famine, especially when our own lives are chaotic, we want to focus on our own families and our own lives, our own careers. We lock into self-preservation mode. But in the kingdom of God, this is counterintuitive. We don't actually grow our families by being family-focused. 
We grow our families by being God-centered. God begins to provide for our families in a way that we cannot. God begins to take care of them in a way that we cannot. I'm going to read you the scripture. It's a little tough. Haggai 1. This is what the Lord of heaven's army says. The people are saying, the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the Lord sent this message to the prophet Haggai. Why are you living in luxurious houses while my house lies in ruins? This is what the Lord of heaven's army says. Look what's happening to you. You've planted much, but you harvest little. You eat, but you're not satisfied. You drink, but you're still thirsty. You put on clothes, but you can't keep warm. Your wages disappear as though you were putting them in pockets filled with holes. This is what the Lord of heaven's army says. Look at what's happening to you. Now go up to the hills, bring down timber, and rebuild my house. Then I will take pleasure in it and be honored, says the Lord. You hoped for rich harvest, but they were poor. And when you brought your harvest home, I blew it away. Why? Because my house lies in ruins, says the Lord of heaven's armies, while all of you are busy building your own fine houses. It is not wrong to build your own fine houses. And some of you who are building a house are like, shoo. <laughs> but what is wrong is to be obsessed with our own kingdoms, our own families, our own houses, while his lies in ruins. If we care about what he cares about, if we care about him, then we're going to pay attention to what he's close to, where he is. And he is, Jesus said, why did you have to search for me to his mom and dad when he went missing? Didn't you know I'd be in my father's house? You want to go looking for Jesus? He's about his father's business. He's in the field. He's in the temple. Let's go on. Verse 14 of Ruth chapter 2. i got to hurry, y'all. At mealtime, Boaz called to her, come over here and help yourself to some food. You can dip your bread in the sour wine. Does that remind you of anything? These are clear communion symbols. So now you're about to, we're about to ping a whole lot of New Testament right here. These are clear communion symbols. Come dip your bread in the sour wine. So she sat with his harvesters and Boaz gave her some roasted grain to eat. She ate all she wanted and still had some left over. Does that remind you of a certain, a certain story? Where Jesus feeds the 5,000, there wasn't enough, and then suddenly they're all satisfied and there's baskets left over. When Ruth, w- with Ruth went to work again, Boaz ordered his young men, let her grain get, gather grain right among the sheaves without stopping her. And pull out some heads of barley from the bundles and drop them on purpose for her. I love that so much. Just drop some extra on purpose. In Louisiana, we have a word for a little something extra. It's called lanyap. So that's what we'll say. Well, if you'll do this, and that's great, and anything else is lanyap. It's a little extra. This is what he's doing. He's dropping some on purpose for her. Let him pick it up and don't give her a hard time. So Ruth gathered barley there all day. And when she beat out the grain that evening, it filled an entire basket. In your, in your commentary, you'll see there are the footnote, 20 liters for one day's work. 20 liters of barley. That's a whole lot of barley. And so she comes home, and she carries it back and shows her mother-in-law and Ruth looked at the roast, Ruth also gave her the roasted grain that was left over from her meal. And she said, where did you gather all this grain today? Where did you work? She was like, this is way too much for one day's work. May the Lord bless the one who helped you. It was obvious Ruth couldn't do this alone. And I cannot tell you that we don't serve God for the perks and benefits, but can I tell you we cannot outserve and outlove him. One of my favorite things is watching God drop things on purpose for people. Taking care of when we seek first the kingdom of God. All these things are added to us. And so this is, where did you work? And she says, the man I worked for, his name is Boaz. And she said, may the Lord bless him, Naomi told her. He is showing kindness to us as well as to your dead husband. That man is one of our closest relatives, one of our family redeemers. Now we're going to get to the best part, the part that had me screaming in my kitchen. Now a family redeemer, let me remind you, the only options 
a woman had at this point in time was to get married or to be redeemed. In the Jewish culture, there was a provision for widows to be redeemed. And the rule was, this is kind of an awkward rule, but the rule was that if there was some, the next closest relative to her dead husband would marry her. So, and then they would have a child for her dead husband so that his name would be preserved. And, he would, and so that the land, remember they, had, they all inherited land when they came out of Egypt and they came into the promised land? And all that land was sacred. It was supposed to, be, supposed to stay in the family for generations to come. Well, if there wasn't a son to inherit the land, then not only would the, son's, the man's name die out, but he would lose his property. So this is a way for inheritance. And so the next in line, so this is super awkward. So basically, if Brandon were to die and we were children of Israel, then his brother John would be first in line to marry me. And he would probably be like, oh, oh, Lord. <laughs> and if he refused to marry me or he couldn't marry me, then where's Pastor Jeremy? You're his first cousin. You would be next in line. <laughs> and that would be totally tumultuous. <laughs> All right, so it's awkward for us, but this was custom for the Jews. And so she was saying, wow, it just so happens that he's one of our family redeemers. He's, he's in line to redeem our family. So then she starts to concoct a plan, this mother-in-law. As mothers and mother-in-laws do, don't we? Matchmaker, matchmaker, make me a match. Ruth 3, one day Naomi said to Ruth, my daughter, it's time that I found a permanent home for you so that you will be provided for. Boaz is a close relative of ours, and he's been very kind by letting you gather grain with his young women. Tonight, he's going to be winnowing barley at the threshing floor. Now do what I tell you. Take a bath. Put on some perfume. You've been sweating. And... Dress in your nicest clothes. Then go to the threshing floor, but don't let Boaz see you until he's finished eating and drinking. Be sure to notice where he lies down. Then go under and uncover his feet and lie down there. He's going to tell you what to do. This seems really kind of like scandalous, right? <laughs> and there are some people who accuse this of being sort of scandalous. But actually, this is a custom in this time of a marriage proposal. There's nothing scandalous about it. This is not a few hundred years ago. This is a few thousand years ago. So I want you to imagine 3,000 years from now what getting down on one knee might seem weird to some people, right? But this was a marriage proposal. Remember the Bible tells us very clearly that Ruth was a virtuous woman. She would not have been doing something scandalous or inappropriate, and neither would Boaz. All we see, we let Scripture interpret Scripture, not what some people commentaries have to make, make a story out of. There's not really a story there, right? This is, they're both called virtuous here. And so she's going to propose marriage. And she says, I will do everything you say. So she went down to the threshing floor that night and followed the instructions of her mother-in-law. And after Boaz had finished eating and drinking and was in good spirits, he lay down at the far end of the pile of grain and went to sleep. Then Ruth came quietly, uncovered his feet, and lay down around midnight. Boaz suddenly woke up and turned over. And he was surprised to find a woman lying at his feet. Who are you? That'll scare you, right? <laughs> I'm your servant, Ruth, she replied. Spread the corner of your covering over me, for you are my family redeemer. So this was a symbol. She was, when she says, spread your corner of your covering, uncover his feet. Now spread mine. For whatever reason, this was a marriage proposal, and he knew it. You are my family redeemer. The Lord bless you, my daughter. You are showing even more family loyalty now than you did before. You've not gone after a younger man, whether rich or poor. So you had better options. Now don't worry about a thing, my daughter. I will do what's necessary, for everyone in town knows you are a virtuous woman. There's the only time in Scripture we see that. But while it's true that I'm one of your family redeemers, there's another man who is more closely related to you than I am. Stay here tonight, and in the morning I'll talk to him. If he's willing to redeem you very well, let him marry you. But if he's not willing, as surely as the Lord lives, I will redeem you myself. 
what does it remind you of for a woman who would be accused of doing something shady, getting at the feet of someone, a man who was esteemed and virtuous? This is very clear pings to Mary, this promiscuous woman at the feet of Jesus, crying and washing his feet, and the disciples saying, if he knew what kind of woman was touching his feet. And yet Jesus honors her. This is very clear ties. We see these parallels in Scripture. And now, here we go. This is the best part. They're getting to make, to make Mary, I'm sorry, to make Ruth a permanent member of the family. Naomi and Boaz have this plan. They're about to enact it, and he's going to come up. In Mark 10, I want to remind you that Jesus said this. I assure you that everyone who has given up houses or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or property for my sake and for the good news will receive now in return a hundred times as many houses, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and property, along with persecution. He, he, he liked to put a little footnote in that. And in the world to come, that person will have eternal life. We can't outgive him. She gave up family, but she was getting ready to inherit a godly family of her own. So there's this curious part, and this is the part that had me shouting. There's a whole section we're getting ready to read that just confuses me. And honestly, I've never heard anybody talk about it. I wasn't going to talk about it, except on that fourth time that I listened on that day to this little part, it just, something was like, what is this? All right, here we go. Boaz went to the town gate and took a seat there. Just then the family redeemer he had mentioned came by. So Boaz called out to him, come over here and sit down, friend. I want to talk to you. And then they sat together. And then Boaz called ten leaders from the town and asked them to sit as witnesses. Boaz says to this unnamed family redeemer, who's first in line to buy her, you know Naomi who came back from Moab. She's selling the land that belonged to your relative Elimelech. And I thought I should speak to you about it so that I can redeem it if you wish. If you want land, then buy it here in the presence of these witnesses. But if you don't want it, let me know right away because I'm next in line to redeem it after you. The man said, all right, I'll redeem it. Then Boaz told him, of course, asterisk, of course, your purchase of the land of Naomi also requires that you marry Ruth, the Moabite widow. That way she can have children who will carry on her husband's name and keep the land of the family. Then I can't redeem it, the family redeemer replied, because this might endanger my own estate. You redeem the land, I cannot do it. And so I wasn't going to acknowledge this. I just thought this was one of those random side notes that we see in Scripture. But the book of Ruth is only four chapters, and we see half of a chapter almost devoted to this unnamed family redeemer. Who is this redeemer that couldn't redeem her? Who is this redeemer that couldn't redeem her? And then the fourth time I heard this story, a little phrase stuck out to me, and it said, call for the ten leaders of the land and had them sit. And immediately I thought about the ten laws of Moses. The first right to have access to this woman would be the law of Moses. What does the law say? And can the law redeem this woman. I want to show you in Romans chapter 8, this verse in verse 3. This other redeemer is the law. And this, it says in Romans, for what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh as an offering for us. This first redeemer, because of the law, could not take in this sinful woman. And so Jesus stepped in as her redeemer. And guys, this is in a city of Bethlehem, prophesying. This is a city of bread. There was a famine. She was coming into the land of bread. He is the 
bread of life Jesus is. This book written 400 years before he shows up in Bethlehem is pointing toward Jesus. There is a Redeemer coming. You cannot save yourselves. The only one who had the right to redeem her, the ability to redeem her, and listen, the willingness to redeem her. He's the only one with the right to redeem us, the capability. He's a spotless lamb. And not just that, but the willingness, the willingness to redeem you. Guys, Jesus did what the law could not do for you. The bride of Christ, this is a picture of us not being able to clean ourselves up. We're having to go through Jesus. He is the way, the truth, and the life. This is the story of the gospel, y'all. It's a story of the gospel, the greatest love story ever told right here in the book of Ruth. It's your story. This is a story about you. She not only marries this man, has a baby who is born into the lineage of Jesus. She had, she's King David's grandmother. She carries the ministry of the Lord Jesus. Remember, Orpah is never heard from again. And yet this woman's radical choice to follow him, radical choice, put her in the very lineage of Jesus. Guys, what is God speaking to you? Have you ever truly encountered that kind of love or have you been trying to redeem yourself through the law? Are you trying to keep the commandments in yourself or have you ever thrown yourself at the mercy of Jesus? Jesus, I can't do it. I need you to redeem me. This is how we follow him. It's the only way. This little book pointing to what was going to happen. God's plan A all along. So much so it's hidden from Genesis to Revelation. If we'll look for it, all of this points to Jesus. Thanks again for listening. To hear more messages like this one, be sure to subscribe and check out our podcast channel for past messages. If you like what you're hearing, please rate and share. For more content, to connect with us, or if you'd like to support this ministry by giving, visit our website, iHeartChurch.com. Dot online. We love you and have a great day.